In Lesson 3, we find two parables that characterize Jesus' approach to life and spirituality. His teaching is fresh and invites his listeners to a different way of thinking and acting. He causes his followers to imagine a new way of relating to God and of living in the world. In chapter 5, verses 33 and following, Jesus responds to a question about fasting by citing two little parables, the one about not using a piece of new cloth to patch an old garment, and the one about not pouring new wine into old wineskins. These parables are a good frame of reference for the rest of chapters 3 through 5. We will see how Jesus challenged the people of his own day and us by expanding our souls, our minds, to receive the new wine of his teaching. Those who drink of this fresh vintage will realize that a change of life is necessary. The teaching and way of life presented by Jesus require an expansion of spirit, as new wine needs a new container. It is not enough to patch our lives with an exterior adherence to his words. We must drink of the Spirit of Christ and allow ourselves to be renewed by grace. Let us then begin our reflections with the appearance of John the Baptist in the desert. Luke situates John's preaching in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar's reign, about A.D. 28. Luke also mentions Pontius Pilate, Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, and the high priests Annas and Caiaphas. All characters will meet again in the Passion narrative. John's message is from God, and he preaches a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, John demands that people change their lives in order to prepare a welcome for the coming of God. So people line up at the Jordan River to be baptized by John. But mere baptism is not enough. You brood of vipers, John exclaims, produce good fruits as evidence of your repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. To claim the merits of a righteous ancestor without true repentance is like trying to sew a piece of good cloth onto an old garment. They don't match, and they're not compatible. One will tear away from the other. In the same way, John warns those coming to him not to rely on kinship to Abraham alone. Repentance and a change of heart are necessary for being one with God. When people wonder if John is the Messiah, he goes on to say, I am baptizing you with water, but one mightier than I is coming. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. In his preaching and water baptism, John is telling the people that they must become new wineskins. They are to change their lives and become pliable containers for the grace that God offers. So when people at the Jordan ask John what they should do, he replies with concrete examples. Share your clothing and food with those who have none. Stop cheating in your business practices. Do not extort or falsely accuse anyone, and so on. These kinds of actions are proof of repentance and represent what it means to be a new wineskin. At the same time, Jesus' baptism with the Holy Spirit and fire are the new wine that will fill the new skins. John's purpose is to prepare a people who are receptive to the new ways of Jesus. Jesus' purpose is to fill his followers with the life-changing power of the Spirit. The fulfillment of this purpose will occur in the account of Pentecost in Luke's other work, the Acts of the Apostles. Meantime, in the Gospel, 
we will see how John and Jesus prepare a people to be ready for ministry. John goes to prison for his fearless preaching and Jesus goes to work. The account of Jesus' baptism in Luke 3 is only two verses long, but it is packed with meaning. Unlike the baptism scenes described by Matthew and Mark, Luke does not say explicitly that Jesus was baptized by John. Rather than grapple with the theological significance of why Jesus should be baptized by John, as we see in Matthew, Luke concentrates on the meaning of the event for Jesus. As he prays after baptism, the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Here we are reminded of Luke chapter 1, where the angel tells Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The same Spirit that enabled Mary to conceive the Son of God now comes upon him as he begins his public life. The very voice of God makes explicit the angel's promise that Mary's son would also be the Son of God. With the affirmation of his identity as God's Son, Jesus is ready to be about his Father's business in earnest, just as he was when he was found in the temple as a boy. Unlike Matthew, who begins his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus, Luke places his genealogy after the baptism scene. The vast differences between the genealogies may help to understand why Luke placed his list of Jesus' ancestors where he did. Matthew begins with Abraham and traces Jesus' ancestry from there down to Joseph, his foster father. Luke begins with Joseph and works the list all the way back to Adam, the son of God. Matthew traces Jesus' human ancestry in order to show his solidarity with the people of Israel. Luke, without denying Jesus' human origins, traces his lineage back to God. Luke's placement of Jesus' family tree looks back to the divine voice at the baptism and forward to Jesus' temptations in the desert, where the devil will try to sow doubt in Jesus' mind about his sonship. The temptations take place over a period of 40 days, a length of time on which all three synoptic gospels agree. This framework is not arbitrary. The evangelists appear to be making the point that unlike the Israelites who were tempted in their desert wanderings for 40 years, Jesus, though tested, remained faithful to God and to his status as beloved son. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert and Israel was led by Moses as God's representative. But Israel worshiped a golden calf, grumbled repeatedly against Moses, and even longed for the familiarity of slavery in Egypt. In the temptation accounts in the Synoptic Gospels, it is clear that Jesus is portrayed as the embodiment of the new and faithful Israel. He proved an obedient servant of God, himself an expansive container for the will of God. The three tests recounted by Luke are the same three as found in Matthew, with a slightly different order. In Luke, as in Matthew, the first temptation is to turn stone into bread. Luke inverts the order of the next two temptations, placing the temple scene in Jerusalem last because of his interest in Jerusalem as the place of fulfillment for Jesus' destiny. Essentially, the three temptations attempt to lure Jesus 
into three basic human desires. That for power, command this stone to become bread. For wealth, all this will be yours if you worship me. And for notoriety, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. If Jesus had not been certain of his true identity, he would have fallen into the devil's traps. The fourth temptation is implicit in the first and third of the devil's suggestions. If you are the Son of God, these words are intended to cast doubt in Jesus' mind as to his origin and to negate the voice of Jesus heard at his baptism. The devil's implication is that if Jesus does not turn stone into bread or jump from the temple, he is neither God's Son nor places faith in God. In the face of these temptations, Jesus' fidelity to God is based on his absolute trust in the voice he heard at his baptism. His Father will provide all he needs. The Spirit will lead him in the right direction. As he will tell his disciples in chapter 12, Do not worry about your life and what you will eat, or about your body and what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. All these nations of the world seek for these things, and your Father knows that you need them. If Jesus had given in to any of the temptations, especially to become wealthy, he could not honestly have preached from the prophet Isaiah in his home synagogue in Nazareth. Had he fallen for the temptations, he would be rich, but he would not be free. And he would have little to say to the poor and to the captives. His identity as spirit-led son of God enables him to proclaim that the passage from Isaiah 61 is fulfilled in your hearing. Such a statement no doubt surprised some of his listeners, but they were favorable to him until he said more. It is at this point that the prophecy of Simeon in chapter 2 comes into play. Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be contradicted, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Jesus the child has become Jesus the man, and he faces early in his ministry not only contradiction, but even death. Jesus does not rest in the adulation he receives after his homily in the synagogue. And all spoke highly of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. No, instead, he turns his gracious words into a challenge and points out that in speaking prophetically, he will not be accepted by his own people. They were happy as long as he spoke about glad tidings for the poor and recovery of sight for the blind and freedom for the oppressed. But when he begins to talk about a widow in the land of Sidon and Naaman the Syrian, their mood turns sour. As long as Jesus speaks in glowing general terms about helping people using the words of the beloved prophet Isaiah, he's on firm ground. But when he speaks favorably of foreigners like Sidonians and Syrians, his life is threatened. He becomes a sign of contradiction in Simeon's prophecy, and he lays bare the thoughts of many because he suggests that salvation is possible for Gentiles as well as for Jews. Jesus tries to pour the new wine of universal salvation for his fellow citizens, but in their narrowness of mind, they will not taste it. The remainder of chapter 4, verses 31 to 44, reads like a day in the busy life of Jesus. We can see Mark's influence on Luke in the hurried pace of the narrative as Jesus cures a demoniac heals Simon's mother-in-law of a fever, 
notice we meet her before we ever meet Simon Peter, and spends an evening performing many cures. The sequence of exorcisms and healings fulfills Jesus' promise to proclaim liberty to captives, to let the oppressed go free. We are given the impression that Jesus performed cures all through the night and stopped at daybreak so that he could be alone. Perhaps Luke is implying he didn't have time to pray for the crowds go looking for him and try to prevent him from leaving them. This is a man who concretely fulfills an ancient Isaiah prophecy. Luke's version of the call of Peter is unique. Matthew and Mark have Jesus calling first Simon and his brother Andrew, then the Zebedee brothers, James and John. Peter and Andrew are fishing, James and John are mending their nets with their father. In each instance, the call from Jesus receives an immediate response. All four stop what they're doing and follow Jesus without a word. But in Luke, the call of Peter takes place in the context of Jesus preaching to a large crowd. Wishing to use Peter's boat as a place from which to preach, he asks Simon to go out a little from the shore. After he finishes speaking, Jesus tells Peter, put out into deep water and lower your nets for a catch. Now Peter hesitates because he and his partners have caught nothing all night, but he does what Jesus tells him. It takes two boats to haul in the fish they catch. In wonder, Peter falls at Jesus' knees and says, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Jesus reassures him and says, From now on, you will be catching men. The huge catch of fish that so astounded Peter and his companions is a sign that his commission to catch people will ultimately be successful. Nothing is impossible with God. All it takes is believers who are willing to leave behind anything that stands in the way of being faithful and who have enough trust to put out into the deep in order to accomplish the mission given to them by Jesus. The vocation of Peter and the others to follow Jesus means becoming new wineskins that are able to contain what Jesus teaches and accept what he asks. The actual living out of this changed life may be imperfectly done, but once the new wine is offered and accepted, nothing else will satisfy. After the call of the first disciples, Jesus cleanses a leper and heals a paralytic. Again, Jesus' prophetic role as the one who brings to life the words of Isaiah is obvious. He sets the leper free from his exile from the community and gives the paralytic liberty from the sins as well as from his inability to move. In his call of the tax collector Levi, Jesus again fulfills old Simeon's prophecy. With the banquet in Levi's house after his call, we hear the Pharisees and the scribes complain that Jesus and his disciples eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners. In saying this, their thoughts are revealed. As Simeon predicted, Jesus has become a sign of contradiction to those who won't understand the inclusiveness of his mission. Everyone is welcome in the kingdom of God, sinners, women, children, Gentiles, lepers. Only the heart of heart find themselves outside the pale, but a place awaits them the moment they repent. One final section. The question about fasting reminds us how little Jesus was understood by some people and how little they trusted his message of freedom and forgiveness. There was in his teaching no guilt inducement, just a fresh approach to an old religion. He attracted suspicion from those who did not think that religion could be joyful. 
So he told the little twin parables of the patch garment and the new wineskins. One doesn't take a bit of Jesus' teaching and slap it on an old way of life and call himself a disciple. We must become new within and adapt ourselves to Jesus' ways, not make him fit our old ways. And Jesus' message is like new wine, full of energy and fermentation. An old skin is stretched as far as it can. New wine, which is still bubbling and expanding, will ruin an old skin. New wine must be placed in a pliable wineskin. In other words, Jesus' message is the new wine, and those who hear him must be willing to allow that message to stretch them. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has prepared the new wine of the kingdom of God, and he offers it to anyone who will receive it. According to Luke, those most willing to grow are the simple, the poor, and those outside the law of Moses. People like Mary of Nazareth, who wasn't sure what the angel meant, but trusted anyway. The fishermen Simon, James, and John, who dropped their nets and followed Jesus' invitation. The leper and the paralytic, who were healed because of their faith. The tax collector Levi, who was so glad that Jesus called him that he threw a banquet. All these and many others received the new wine of faith in Jesus because they were willing to change in order to receive the wine. Many say, the old wine is better and will not even sample the new. To taste the new wine or to wear a new garment requires a change of heart like that of sinners and tax collectors.